This is the Bible Line, a live radio call-in program with Dr. Carl Brogy. Dr. Brogy is the senior pastor of Community Bible Church of Beaufort, South Carolina. And for the next hour, he's available to answer your questions, providing biblical insight and wisdom for everyday Christian living. Our phone lines are open, and if you have a question, you may call 525-1859 locally or outside the immediate area, call toll-free 877-924-7980. Now let's join Dr. Carl Brogy. Study and show yourself approved of God as a workman who is not ashamed, accurately handling the word of truth. We welcome you this hour to the Bible line, wherever you may be listening here in the United States or even foreign countries at time. For the next hour, we take people's questions. Now, there are many ways in which you can contact us. We always give preference to live callers. Some call live and dictate their questions. Some have no problem going on the air. Uh, So if you have a burning question, feel free to call us here today. And again, the local exchange, the 843 South Carolina Exchange is 525-1859. Or if it's easier for you to remember, the 877 toll-free number is the call letters WAGP980. 877-WAGP980. Or you can email us here directly into the studio. And our email address is TBL, that stands for the Bible line, TBL at WAGP.net. Well, Rick, uh, let's go ahead and we'll get started this morning. We'll take these questions one at a time as they come through. Very good, Pastor. April uh, writes, in Proverbs 22.20, it talks about 30 sayings in the ESV. It doesn't say this is uh, this in the NASB, 1995. Um, or the KJV as well. Some commentators speak of three things, but I can't figure this out on my own. Can you help? So I didn't clear, clearly make that a distinction. Apparently, the ESV says 30 sayings in yeah. Proverbs 22, 20, but the NASB and the KJV mm. uh, are different. Yeah, it is true that uh, many of you read Proverbs every day, and so Sometimes I'll even change translations. I'll go from one translation to another. Sometimes you pick up something or there is an idiom that's in the uh, background that makes you think and consider. So in Proverbs 22 and in verse 20, both the King James and the NASB read very similar. Have I not written to you excellent things of counsels and knowledge? Where the ESV says 30 things. The Hebrew actually says a threefold measure or a triple and it's an interesting Hebrew word. It's the word uh, shilshom, and it can be used literally of a threefold measure or a triple or something that you want to emphasize as being great um, in terms of something that is really superb or excellent. Uh, so the issue is, do you literally translate it? Or do you translate it as an idiom? And so the King James and the New American Standard, and uh, if I remember the Net Bible and a number of others, um, uh, don't translate it. Literally, they, uh, they translate the idiom. And so the idiom, when it's used idiomatically, it can mean excellent things or great things, or it can mean like in times past, and that's just the Hebrew language. And we have a lot of idioms in English like that as well that you translate literally or you translate or you use as an idiom. So there's obviously some debate 
as to how to take it. The question is if it's uh, 30 things or maybe better a threefold measure or a triple, what is he referring to? And so there lies the debate. Some would say, well, he's uh, referring to the three major divisions in Proverbs and um, many people divide Proverbs, you know, like 1 through 9 or 1 through 10, and then 11 through 25, and then in the middle, 25, where you have these special sayings, 25 through the end of the book. Uh, some would say, well, it's the three major sections of the Old Testament, uh, what we call the Tanakh, uh, the Torah, uh, the Navim, the Prophets, uh, so the first five books, the Prophets, and the Ketuvim, the Writings. And so, that's how Jews, of course, uh, refer to the Old Testament. They call it the Tanakh. They don't call it the Old Testament because it's the only scripture that they acknowledge unless they're Messianic Jews and believe Jesus is the Messiah. Then they recognize all 66 books. Honestly, I think the King James and the NASB I capture it well, that it really is an idiom. And I say that because there are other places where he doesn't use this idiom, but he repeats, I'm writing to you about noble things. And here I think excellent things. So I don't think he has like three major divisions or 30 sayings involved. I, I think he's just using it idiomatically of something that is really great and something that is excellent. So that is a great question that April, wherever she calls from, is asked. And let's go to the next one. All right. We've got a live caller standing by. Thanks for holding. Good morning. You're on the Bible line. Um, yes. Good morning. I am calling about the passage in Luke uh, chapter 21, to, um, verses 25 through 32. And my question relates to, is the fig tree representing Israel, and specifically the reestablishment of Israel as a nation on May 14, 1948. And just curious, is this the last generation that Jesus is referring to? Well, that is a fantastic question, and it, and it comes up in the what we typically traditionally call the Olivet Discourse. Uh, you just referenced it from... Luke, let me go to Matthew 24, where it is also found, and it's actually uh, found in a little more context because the, the whole Olivet Discourse is spelled out in Matthew 24 and 25. If you remember, uh, they're sitting on the Mount of Olives, and uh, these disciples say to him, tell us, you know, Lord, what will, when will these things happen? And what will be the sign of your coming and of the end of the age? So they really ask two questions. One, when is the temple going to be destroyed? Where he has just stated to the inner three here that one stone will not stand upon another. And then what will be the signs of your coming, the end of the age? And so he begins in 24-4 to unfold uh, various events that will happen. Let no one mislead you. Uh, many will come in my name saying, I'm Messiah, I'm Christ, and will mislead many wars, rumors of wars, nation against nation, uh, plagues, um, pestilence, as Luke brings out, earthquakes, famines. And then he says, these are just the beginning of the birth pangs. People are going to deliver you over, kill you. Of course, his point is, is that true Christians will not fall away, but many will fall away and betray one another. So the coming apostasy that the scripture speaks of apostasia is when uh, people stand against the truth that they had previously embraced. And so all these people who said they were Christians during this time will reject Christ. And 
more false prophets, growing lawlessness, um, then the abomination of desolation, which um, in 2415, when you put it together with the book of Revelation, along with the place where it's actually quoted from, Daniel 9, it's the midpoint of the tribulation. So the tribulation period, or it's called the time of Jacob's trouble, is seven years. And we know that not simply from the Old Testament, but the New Testament as well. And of course, right in the middle, there'll be this event when the Antichrist will claim to be God. He'll go in, he'll defile a rebuilt temple. And then when this event happens, Jesus said, now you really need to look out. Now remember, he likens the tribulation period to a woman in labor, birth pangs. And so a woman who goes into labor, first the pains are slight, they increase, they get more intense, more frequent until she gives birth. And so you have the birth pangs of Matthew 24, 4 through 14, that are yet a future event. Now, I think the pregnancy is evident in our day that there is uh, something that is happening that's very unusual in the world today. And that is largely, of course, indexed to the nation of Israel because God said at the end of time, he would gather the Jewish people back into the land. The rapture of the church is imminent. The second coming is a prophetically driven event. But when God begins to fulfill prophecy for the second coming, which he's doing in our lifetime, then you know the rapture is that much closer, that much sooner. And so uh, the birth pangs are actually paralleling what the revelation says concerning the sealed judgments. The first half up to verse 15 perfectly fits the horsemen, four horsemen of the apocalypse. Then there's this mid-event that takes place, and when it happens, the revelation says there's 30 minutes of silence in heaven. Why? Well, we can't dogmatically say, but I think it might simply be that people's breath is taken away. Remember with the seal judgments, if you've studied in the Revelation with me, and I did like 70-some hours of teaching on the book of Revelation, uh, you can only see those one at a time. But when you come to the seventh seal, in the seventh seal are contained seven trumpets, and in the seventh trumpet are contained seven bowls. And when you see the trumpet and bowl judgments, it's like, whoa, Uh, it's like a rheostat being turned up, and it gets worse and worse and worse and worse and worse, and it culminates with the second coming where he says, um, for just as the lightning comes from the east, in verse 27 of chapter 24, and flashes even to the west, even so shall the coming of the Son of Man be. So then after that, he speaks of immediately what will happen after the tribulation, and then the verse at hand that you raise. Now learn this parable from the fig tree. When its branch has already become tender and put forth its leaves, you know that summer is near. So you too, when you see all these things, recognize that he is near right at the door. So the question becomes, what is the fig tree? How do we interpret it? Some have said, well, the fig tree is Israel. And there's debate whether the fig tree in and of itself in Jeremiah is a reference to, you know, Israel, a picture of Israel. Um, In either case, she's usually illustrated with the um, olive olive tree and in in the in such vines as that uh, grape vines as well but in either case uh, 
even if the fig tree Israel is Israel uh, is used emblematically that way in Scripture, it certainly is not being used that way. So this is what some popular writers did. They said that the fig tree is Israel, so when you see it put forth its leaves, there's life, so to speak, there, then we're a generation away from the second coming of Christ. So there was a popular writer uh, he's like 93, 94 years old, if I remember now. His name was Hal Lindsey. He wrote a book in the 70s called The Late Great Planet Earth, and it sold millions of copies. He retired on it, basically. Well, I shouldn't say retired. He continued to minister, but he made millions of dollars. Well, when the sales of that book kind of ran its course, he then said, well, uh, Christ is basically going to come by 1988. And his rationale was, is when you see the fig tree sprout its leaves, when Israel comes back to life, i.e. becomes a nation, May 14th, 1948, and if a generation is 40 years long, then by 1988, Jesus will come back. Well, it didn't happen, obviously. And then he said, well, a generation could be 70 years, and well, that's true, too. Uh, could be 80 years, and Job, it's 100 years. So, you know, you, you're all over the map, and he really abused Scripture. And I should say to his credit, he apologized and said he was wrong for saying that. Now, he went to the same seminary I did, and he never learned that there. So what is the fig tree? It's just a natural illustration. You say, how do I know that? Because of what you read in the parallel account in Luke's Gospel. Because it's very clear in Luke's gospel that he's not simply referencing Israel. He's using a natural illustration, as Christ often does in the Scripture, to build a biblical truth. So, for instance, in uh, Luke chapter uh, 29, he said, Then he told them a parable, Behold, the fig tree, and then he adds, In all the trees. Behold, the fig tree, in all the trees. As soon as they put forth their leaves, you see it and know for yourselves that summer is near. So he's following a progression here. When you see in the late spring of the year, the fig tree and other trees begin to sprout their leaves, then you know indeed that um, summer is right behind it because it's the first sign of spring and spring leads into summer. Jesus's point is, when you see these things, what things? The things that are described beginning in Matthew 24. When you see the birth pangs, when you see the abomination of desolation, when you see the great tribulation is spelled out in the trumpet and bowl judgments, when you see these things, if you're alive for this time frame in human history, then you are the last generation on earth. The word generation that's used here in Greek is not principally used of a, of a, a numerical um, index. In fact, it just means a people. The, the people who are alive, when they see this happen, they will be here for the second coming of Christ. So uh, there's a lot of dramatic, sensational preaching today that sells books, that gets people worked up, and unfortunately... Um, they use the fig tree to say, well, Israel's become a nation. And so, hey, look, Israel becoming a nation is a very, very important prophetic event. It's one of the most important prophetic events that we have. We might call it a super prophecy because clearly, undebatably, 
Israel becoming a nation and being regathered back in the land. And first they're gathered back physically, and then they are regenerated spiritually. That prophecy happening takes place at the end of the age. So we know we're at the end of the age. Do we have 20 or 30 or 40? We don't know. But we know we're at the end of the age because this did not happen in 2,000 years since 70 A.D. where they were obliterated as a nation. So the fact that God is doing precisely what he said he would do at the end of the age when he gathered the Jews from the four corners of the world tells you that we're in that time frame. And there's a convergence of signs. There's growing lawlessness. There's growing homosexuality, growing violence, immorality. Because again, the rapture is not a prophetically driven event, but the second coming is. And the second coming will be like the days of Noah and the days of Lot. And yeah, I think we do have increased earthquakes and things, but those aren't really the birth pangs, but they might be indicative of those uh, premature um, uh, labor pains. What are they called, Rick? Uh, Braxton Hicks. Yeah, Braxton. Yeah, we probably have the Braxton Hicks um, contractions that are happening now. There's a pregnancy. We're, we're, we're towards that time frame in human history, but only God, of course, knows the day and the hour. Fantastic question. Let's go to the next one. All right, 843-525-1859. If you have a question on today's Bible line, Alberto from Savannah is on the line. Thanks for holding. Good morning. You're on the Bible line. Well, good morning, gentlemen. My question is, I hear a lot of ministers say that they don't find America in the last day eschatology, right? So my understanding, and I'm not saying I'm a prophet or nothing like that, but maybe because America will be overthrown by foreign nations and no longer be called America. It could be overthrown by Islam or the communists and rename this country another name and eradicate any historical history of America. That's why America will not be found and the prophetic uh, historic uh, future events of uh, the Bible? Well, it's, it's a fair question, so let me see if I can respond to it. America is nowhere by name ever mentioned in Scripture, and people who have found America in Scripture take other idioms uh, that are referencing other peoples or other events, and then they take modern... Um, you know, events in our day, and they uh, write these idioms that might apply to Israel or some other nation, and they put America in its place. Look, there's only actually, apart from the immediate enemies that lived in Israel's day, there's not really that many nations that are referenced for the end of time. The nations that are referenced by name for the end of time are those nations that are involved in the war of Gog and Magog. Uh, Gog being a prince, a leader, and Magog being a nation, and then some specific countries. And so we learn that Iran is going to go against Israel. We learn that Russia is going to go against Israel. Uh, Sudan is going to go against Israel. So there's some specific nations in Ezekiel that are mentioned that are going to lead in a war against Israel, and they're going to be defeated, not because of the Israeli defense um, you know, capabilities, but because God will supernaturally intervene. And some think that this may um, 
take place towards the beginning of the tribulation that would launch the peace treaty that an antichrist would sign with Israel. Some think it will take place before the rapture. We can't definitively say, but it is interesting to note, even in most recent days, that the countries that immediately border Israel are not those that are highlighted in this war, but those on the outer perimeter who are going to come against uh, this particular country. But not only are they mentioned, then in a broad sense, all the countries of the world are mentioned. And so in Zechariah chapter 12 and verse 3, it will come about in that day that I will make Jerusalem a heavy stone for all the peoples. All who lift it up will be severely injured, and all the nations of the earth will be gathered against it. So God is writing of a time when all the nations of the earth will be gathered against Israel. And of course, the New Testament mentions this same truth uh, as the kings of the world are gathered uh, and they uh, are on the, in the, um, the, what we call the Battle of Armageddon, uh, which is kind of Christianese. There is technically no such battle. It's a war, but they're going to gather their forces together on a particular uh, place in Israel, and then they will march together against Jerusalem. And of course, God will crush that battle with the second coming of Christ. So in that sense, we know that while uh, no doubt Israel's greatest ally today is the United States, we know that that is going to change. It will definitely have changed by the time the church is raptured. But I do think the seeds are being planted in our day. Someone asked last week about, you know, the new reformed movement and why it seems to be catching so much. And it's kind of sad, but, uh, you know, basic to reformed theology is that God has done with the Jewish people, that the church is the new Israel. And so they spiritualize dozens and dozens of prophecies of Scripture. They apply a different principle for interpreting what we call uh, eschatology or the doctrine of last things or prophetic literature as it relates to the second coming of Christ, they apply a different principle to interpret those scriptures than they do with the rest of scripture. And so they have to because it's the only way they can defend their whole system of theology. Now, I'm not saying these are evil people. There are many good godly men who uh, embrace reformed theology that the church is the new Israel. And there are aspects of Reformed theology that no doubt most people listening to me today believe, but it's not because it's Reformed theology, it's because it's biblical. For instance, the perseverance of the saints, that once we're saved, we're saved forever, and if we are saved, we'll persevere because our life has changed and it's taken on a new direction. That's a a truth of Reformed theology, but it's really a truth of the Bible. But I think the consequence of the fact that you have so many, especially young pastors today, who are not acknowledging Israel as God's timepiece to bring about the second coming of Christ, what that will in essence do is it will create a greater possibility for anti-Semitism in the world. Because you see, when we lift up Israel, as God does, and is God done with Israel? Certainly not. How do we know? Because he promised, he made an unconditional covenant with the people of Israel that could not be broken because it was unilateral. When God put Abraham to sleep and cut the animals in two, um, God alone walks through the animals. Normally, each 
person making the deal would walk through, and they basically were saying to each other, you can do to me what we just did to these animals that we cut in two if I don't keep my promise. Well, God puts Abraham in a deep sleep, and the only one who walks through is the living God because it's not contingent on Israel's obedience. And so they end up rejecting the Messiah, but a day is coming after he gathers them physically, he is going to regenerate them spiritually. Well, how do we know? Well, thus says the Lord who gives the sun for light by day and the fixed order of the moon and the stars for light by night, who stirs up the sea that its waves roar. The Lord of hosts is his name. If this fixed order, the sun, the moon, and the stars, if this fixed order departs from before me, declares the Lord, then the offspring of Israel will also cease from being a nation before me forever. Thus says the Lord, if the heavens above can be measured, and they can't, and the foundations of the earth searched out below, and they can't, then I will cast off all the offspring of Israel for all that they have done, declares the Lord. So God is committed. He's faithful. He's not going to dump Israel. But we have people today who are basically saying that. And so their church, more and more, is not acting as salt. Salt preserves righteousness. We're not acting as light that dispels darkness. And a lack of uh, appreciation for God's plan through Israel will will end up in growing anti-Semitism in all the nations of the world, as both Zechariah and other prophets and the book of Revelation teach is going to happen during the tribulation period. So I don't think it has anything to do with, well, it, the United States will no longer be a nation or anything. Could, might, might, we might not be a nation. We certainly got some big issues going on now. Um, but that's not really what is in view. Good question. Let's go to the next one. All right. We've got a number of callers standing by, so let's go to our next caller. Thanks for holding. Good morning. You're on the Bible line. Good morning, Dr. Berge. How are you? I'm doing fine. Thanks for calling. How can we be of help today? I have a, uh, a situation that I need some practical advice on, and that's that uh, I'm a, uh, I have my own church that I regularly attend, However, I have a pastor friend who've, who I've known for a while, and his church meets outside the time that my church meets, and so every once in a while I'm able to go over and catch his service after I catch my home. And I'm also able to um, <clears throat> fellowship with some of the um, the members of his church at their houses and get-togethers and stuff. However, I've, I've um, become aware of a certain member of the other church who uses marijuana, I believe, I'm not entirely sure, but I believe out of um, his feeling that he has the liberty to do so, um, misunderstanding the scriptures or so. And um, I've met him once or twice, but I don't know him very well. And so my conscience is troubled about continuing to fellowship um, in places where he's at, you know, um, based upon my responsibility to not keep my mouth shut. And so but I'm also not a member of that church, and so I'm wondering what you think I should do. And one last thing I'll say is I did ask the pastor, out of context, you know, not mentioning his name or anything, what he thought about marijuana use, and he gave a good biblical answer where he felt it, you know, it wasn't acceptable for a Christian. So what would you do in that situation? It's a great question, so let me see if I can respond. Uh, certainly, he's your brother in Christ. And so, you know, if your brother, <laughs> excuse me, if your brother sins, go and confront him. If he doesn't listen, you take two or three. If he doesn't listen, you take it 
to the church. And so I think it would begin, uh, it certainly could begin with you. You could argue this, <coughs> excuse me, on both sides of the coin. Uh, one that uh, it can start with you since you're aware of it. I suspect that if you are aware of it, there are other individuals who are aware of it. But ultimately, this is a local church discipline issue. But you could certainly go and confront this brother and say, hey, you know, I'm not a member here, but certainly you're my brother in Christ, at least you claim to be, and what you're doing is wrong. And if uh, you've said that, and uh, I'm guessing you have, and you've gotten some like negative feedback and response, then I would go to this pastor. He happens to be someone you know, which makes it even easier, but he needs to be aware of this. I would want to be aware. You know, there are sometimes people who become aware of an issue in a local church uh, that they don't themselves feel qualified to go and confront. Because, of course, Galatians 6 and verse 1 says that you who are spiritual are to, you know, confront a brother who is caught up and tangled in a trespass. And so sometimes they don't feel spiritually qualified that they meet those parameters. So they'll come in to me and say, hey, look, I know you want to be aware of this. This is a member of our church and they're doing such and such. And obviously there are not um, not every sin that unfolds. Uh, is something that uh, should be disciplined. If if that were true, the church would be under discipline 24-7 because we all stumble in many ways. The one who says he has no sin, well, he is denying the truth of what God says, and he's making God to be a liar, First John 1. But with that said, there are certain sins that warrant public discipline. Someone's living in adultery. Someone is on drugs, and they claim to know Christ and claim to be a member of your church. And so really what this person is doing by taking marijuana is they're engaging in sorcery. Uh, That's the term that's used in Galatians 5 concerning the uh, deeds of the flesh. It's pharmakia. We get our word pharmacy from it. And so people who get on marijuana... They can justify it, but they're engaged in sorcery. The sad thing is, is the rationale that's being used today is, well, look, you like to have a beer to relax. You like to have a glass of wine to relax. Why can't I smoke a joint to relax? And so you can see the debacle that we've created in the church because we have such a loose view on alcohol. And uh, sadly, again, coming back to a previous statement and a question that came in last week on the new Calvinists, which is really not new, but nonetheless, you have this movement of young pastors um, who advocate, you know, drinking and some even smoking in moderation. And they're violating the clear teaching of Scripture alone on the fact that it causes someone to stumble alone on the fact that it doesn't really glorify God in our day, alone on the fact that it has appearance of evil, but definitively on the fact that it is strong drink. And God forbids a believer to use strong drink. And he's not talking about rum or whiskey or vodka that come almost a thousand years after the Bible is written, but he's talking about naturally fermented wine. And the one exception to that was you could give strong drink to someone who's dying and in despair as a pain reliever. But if you look at people who walk down the road such that they even walk into demon possession, for many of them, it started with illicit drug use 
And the primary drug of preference that most people start in is marijuana. And it kind of goes from there. And so you look at some of these even rock bands that openly say we worship Satan. And you read a little bit about their life and they are strong advocates of pot and other drugs. And they have opened themselves up to sorcery, to the demonic realm. But this is an issue that needs to be disciplined. So you're aware of it at, at the at the uh, at the least, you could start yourself and go confront him if you wanted and then go to the pastor. It sounds like you've already had that conversation. So I would probably just go to the pastor at this point, make him aware of it, and then it's his responsibility. And if he is indeed a man of integrity, and he certainly sounds like it, and it sounds like he has some clear convictions on this, and again, you know, the sad thing is it's legal now in more and more states. And so I was just in Massachusetts uh, recently and seeing these billboards about where you can get your dope and everything else. And we were in New York City in December just before COVID broke out. And my wife and I were there for a conference and we saw all these trucks. They looked like ice cream trucks, but they were actually peddling dope. And they were all over the city and it's legal. And of course, just because something is legal doesn't make it right. Abortion is legal, but it's murder. And taking dope may be legal in many states. And now you've got all these leaders in Colorado that are deeply regretting the decision that they've made because they've opened a can of worms. What did they initially want to do? They wanted money. We can regulate this. We can tax it. We can bring in you know X number of billions into the Colorado state budget. But now they've created all these problems. And that's the way it is. It's like gambling. Oh, well, legalize gambling. But then all the crime that comes with it, it's basically the money they make is countered. So it needs to be disciplined. And it needs to be disciplined for two reasons. One, for the sake of the brother, because he's caught up in a trespass. And if he is a real believer, he'll be responsive. And if he's not, he'll be put out of the church. And if he's put out of the church... Then, as 1 Corinthians 5 indicates, he's given over to the evil one, and he's lost the protection of the local assembly. And he is disciplined in a very severe way by the hand of God Almighty. And if there's no discipline that comes on his life that is designed to lead him to repentance, it just means he's never been saved. So sometimes the church puts someone out, and you say, well, what's the, what's the point? You know, they, they didn't respond, and they didn't seemingly had, have any discipline. There's a big point. The testimony of the church is purified because no one can go around and say, you know, that guy over there, he's smoking that reefer. He goes to such and such a church and there's just a bunch of hypocrites down there. They talk about holy and righteous living. Even the unbeliever in his heart knows that these things are evil. So that's a great question. I appreciate it. Sounded like he was calling from Massachusetts. It did, yes. Yeah, let's go to the next caller. All right, 843-525-1859. If you have a question on today's Bible line, and Kay from Beaufort has been very patiently waiting. Thanks for holding. Good morning. You're on the Bible line. Oh, hey, Pastor Carl. I'm wondering what you know about Dr. Andy Woods, who's the senior pastor at Sugarland Bible Church and also the president of Schaefer Theological Seminary. Yeah, so um, it, it, it's, it's an interesting uh, scenario. Right now, there's a uh, crisis that's going on in the nation uh, concerning uh, seminaries. And, of course, Lewis Sperry Chafer was the one who 
uh, started Dallas Theological Seminary in the 1920s. And uh, it was um, born out of a need to create expository preachers who were faithful and deeply committed uh, to the Word of God. Um, And what's happening, sadly, in the day that we live in is more and more seminaries are drifting away from that. Uh, Dallas Seminary, I wish I had been on a conference call because it was by invitation only last week, but I just could not make it. But there's a new president, and I hope maybe he'll take it in a different direction. And many of you know that I was contacted in the process of them looking for a seminary president. And I responded, I said, well, I would be loved to be considered in that process, but here are some real issues that I have. And of course, uh, Dallas Seminary has you know, changed their view on drinking for over a hundred, that they'd held for nearly a hundred years. Um, just just on a number of issues, uh, they were beginning to waver on some really critical things like why did Andy Stanley come and preach in the chapel when he's got gay people being baptized on Sunday morning with their partner watching? And he was confronted by a major church in Atlanta, the Church of the Apostles, over that. And again, this is very, very sad. So what people are doing is they're they're looking for a difference. They're saying, well, what can we do to turn this around? And so Chafer Theological Seminary is really trying to do that. And in the spirit of Lewis Berry Chafer, they are trying to um, be faithful to God's word, to raise up expository preachers who will preach verse by verse by verse. And so I'm, I'm really behind it. Um, I would say that they're not as developed as obviously some other seminaries. And for some people, you know, they've got one opportunity to sharpen their sword and maybe carve three or four years out of their life uh, to be able to go to seminary. And so they're, you know, going to places like um, John MacArthur's school, and which is a, you know, great, great school that they have there in California. And they also now have some uh, satellite branches and, and they don't want to, you know, go to a seminary that's still in the developmental process. And it is in some respects, but in other ways, I think you can get a fine theological education there that would be um, solid uh, in, in every respect. So anyway, um, good good question. Let's go to the next one. All right, 843-525-1859. If you have a question on today's Bible line, Quentin from Buford uh, would like to know the difference between an idol and a statue. He writes, I have collectible statues, and I don't know whether it's biblical to have them. Are all idols statues, but not all statues idols? And can idols be more than statues, i.e. anything worldly habits or loves? Or is idolatry only something worshipped? Well, it's a it's a great question. Um, if you were to look up in the dictionary, what is an idol? It would probably tell you something that you put in devotion, a thing or a person or a philosophy that is above God. And certainly the worship of images where people bow down and worship a statue is something that is not only true in biblical days, but about a third of the world still practices it. Hey, look, if you go to, if you take the population of China, India, and Pakistan, that, that makes over half of the world's population, just those three nations. And India is getting ready 
to bypass China, they believe maybe next year, where they will be the most populated country in the world. I've been to India on two occasions to preach and once to do a pastor's conference, another time to uh, speak to some 800 students for a week, and half of them were Hindus. And the exciting thing is, is that excuse me, 800 who came to Christ that week. There was about 2,500 students who came, and half of them were Hindus. So God's doing a great work in that country. But when you go to India, all across India, I mean, there are indeed idols everywhere. I remember watching this guy who looked like a pile of bones. You could see his ribs up and down his chest, and there he was taking some milk that he needed, his family no doubt needed, and he's pouring it out on the base of a tree uh, to worship some tree god. And so God says, you shall not make for yourself an idol or any likeness of what is in heaven above or on earth beneath or in the water under the earth. You shall not worship them or serve them. For I, the Lord your God, am a jealous God, visiting the iniquity of the fathers and the children of the third and fourth generations of those who hate me. And so God told the Israelites, look, I don't even want you to mention the names of these so-called gods. There's obviously only one God. These little idols are not truly gods. And so you see that theme recurring through the prophets. Oh, you make this idol and you even, you know, put gold and silver on it, but it can't speak to you and it can't deliver you and it can't do anything for you. And God didn't even want them to mention the names of these idols. But many times you see like supernatural manifestations around the idol and that the demonic is involved. Uh, God forbade Israel to intermarry with cultures who practiced idolatry. The book of Hosea, that's one of the underlying messages in the book of Hosea because he uses this imagery of adultery to describe Israel's continual rebellion of chasing after false gods. God says, look, you're married to me, not to these false gods, and what you're doing is no different from, you know, an uh, adulterous woman. So is, of course, uh, idolatry limited to an object? And the answer plainly in Scripture is no. And so we're told in 1 Corinthians 10, flee idolatry. God says flee sexual lusts, youthful lusts. He also says flee idolatry. And when he lists the deeds of the flesh in Galatians 5, we've already mentioned one from there, from the last caller, sorcery, uh, pharmakia, drug use. He says the deeds of the sin nature are plain, they're evident, immorality, impurity, sensuality. Hey, that's our culture covered over in those, idolatry, sorcery, enmity, strife, and so on, and things like these of which I forewarn you as I forewarned you that those who practice such things, people who live this way, have no inheritance in the kingdom of God. These are unregenerate people. He's not saying that a Christian couldn't get engaged in some kind of sexual immorality or impurity or even get drunk, or, but if this is your lifestyle, if this is the direction of your life, then you have no inheritance. It's evident that you're not regenerated. It's possible, though, for a Christian to commit an act like this because he begins uh, this section by saying the deeds of the flesh, of the sin nature, are evident. 
But right before that, he says, for the flesh sets its desire against the spirit and the spirit against the flesh. They're in opposition to one another. So he says in the verse before that, walk by the spirit so that you won't carry out the desires of the flesh. No need to give such an exhortation if it were an impossibility. But he also then finishes this list by saying those who belong to Christ have crucified the flesh with its passions and its desires. In other words, they have a new direction. We're not talking about perfection, but we are talking about direction. And if there's not new direction in the life, then there's no really genuine new birth. Or you could look at the book of Colossians, and there he says, greed is idolatry. Uh, That's pretty plain. Um, Let me read it. Colossians 3, verse 5. Therefore, consider the members of your earthly body as dead to immorality, impurity, passion, evil, and desire, and greed, which amounts to idolatry. So for some people, their idol is sexual immorality. They live for porn. They live for the next sexual illicit relationship. Uh, They're driven by greed. Their God is their gold. And again, if this is someone's lifestyle, then uh, they are engaged in idolatry. Now, does that mean that a statue is an idol? Of course not. He's talking about um, something that someone created and they bow down in worship either as a literal God or it's representative of the false God that they worship. And that is idolatry. Look, we've got a new form of idolatry in our day. I call it environmentalism. And I covered this when we went through the book of Revelation, this whole new green movement and people who put more faith in science than they do in the word of God. And I'm not saying that we should abuse the creation. We're called to be stewards over it. But people think that somehow they are going to save the world, save the earth, save the heavens, and that's what they live for when the truth is God says a day is coming when he's going to totally destroy the current heavens and earth. The biggest meltdown, um, global warming like you've never seen, is going to happen in the future when God eliminates the heavens and the earth. Now, during the Protestant Reformation, you had people who were called Uh, who believed in what's called iconoclasm. And iconoclasm is a belief that says there should be no religious pictures or statues of representative of of a person, a religious leader, or anything. And you had even people like J.I. Packer who went home to the Lord a few years ago. He said a church shouldn't even have a a picture of the Lord Jesus in a child's coloring book or um, on the wall of the church. And I, I never did like those pictures of Jesus on the wall of the church. He's usually, you know, those is, you know, light skinned, uh, maybe a halo. Rick's, Rick's creating a, a plate above his head or, or blue eyed or whatever, and not really a dark skinned Israeli Jew. Uh, but still, um, you know, they were against all of these statues, and so they wanted them destroyed in the church, and largely because people were worshiping these various saints and calling out to them and praying to them. But technically, there's nothing wrong with a statue in your home unless it's become an idol that you worship or it's representative of a god. But understand, too, that idolatry, though a third of the world still practices it, just like you see often reading in Scripture, Scripture doesn't limit it to a statue. It can be any philosophy or thing um, that you put above God. 
All right, very good. We had a caller that dictated their question. All right. They'd like to know, how does a Christian know if they are truly saved, and can a true Christian have doubts about their salvation? Well, yes, it's possible for someone to doubt their salvation, but I would say initially, if you have never come to an assurance of salvation, there's probably a high probability that you've never really been saved. Uh, Why is that? Because um, faith is acknowledging the promise that God made. God made a promise, whoever will call upon the name of the Lord will be saved. It's quoted in Romans 10, but he's actually quoting the prophet Joel, and it's found in other places in Scripture, very similar wording. But in Joel's quotation that Paul takes it from, it's really a messianic passage. It's referring to the Messiah, that you call upon the Messiah and you will be saved. And, of course, Paul takes that in Romans 10, having clearly described all that Jesus would do in Romans 3 through 5, and then the benefits in chapters 6 through 8. And he concludes in chapter 8 by saying, well, nothing can ever, ever separate us from the love of God. And the logical question would be, well, what about Israel? It seems to me like maybe God has abandoned Israel as his people. And then in 9, 10, and 11, he illustrates that nothing can separate from the love of God because in 9, he shows that God elected Israel out of all the nations of the world. In chapter 10, he shows that they have rejected the Messiah. In chapter 11, because God's not done with Israel, he will restore them. Now, being a Jew doesn't automatically make you a candidate for heaven. You still have to call upon the name of the Messiah in faith. And he looks at chapter 11, he says that's going to happen in the future. But in chapter 10, he explains the current reason for rejection. And the current reason for rejection is self-righteousness. And that's the reason many people today don't become a Christian. Because they don't see their need for it. Everything's just fine. Me and God, you know, we got this understanding and, you know, I'm going to heaven and they've don't really see themselves for the way God sees them as an absolutely holy God. So I say all that to say this. The promise, whoever will call upon the name of the Lord, is predicated on what God did in Christ. If God made such a promise and had not made a way in which his justice and holiness could be satisfied, and in the process his love demonstrated, then he would be an unrighteous God. He would be like a judge letting a murderer go free in the name of forgiveness. No, God has to have a basis by which he can forgive people. That basis is the cross, and it's on that basis that he makes the promise. And then we have to choose whether or not we believe. Now, the reason many people don't have assurance of salvation is because they don't really know what the gospel is. They have a fuzzy gospel. You know, invite Jesus into your heart kind of gospel, a phrase never found in the Bible, never. Now, the closest thing you might get is I stand at the door and knock, but he's standing at the door of the church, not at the door of your heart. And so in either case, the point is, is that you become a Christian and Christ comes into your life when you trust in the death, burial, and the resurrection. You don't have to know a whole lot to be saved, and you can have a lot of wrong beliefs and still go to heaven, though as you grow in Christ, those wrong beliefs will be corrected because you have the mind of Christ and you have a new capability to understand spiritual truth that you didn't have before you were born again. But uh, you have to know that you're a sinner, that your sin basically bankrupts you, and only the death, burial, and resurrection of Christ can save you. And if you don't know that much, you don't have the gospel in which to believe. 
And so, you know, I'll often tell people, you know, today is the day of salvation. God can't say, cannot say that you can be saved today if it were earned. If it were earned, he might say, well, we'll look at your life 25 years from now and see how you did. We'll see how many good deeds you did or the good that you did, whether you did them well enough. But it's not on that basis. We're saved by grace through faith because good works can't remove the stain of sin and good works can never satisfy the penalty of sin, which is death. So God provides a substitute by which he can put our sin away and declare us righteous, impute credit righteousness to our account. So then it becomes a faith issue. And you see, once you understand the plan of salvation, if you don't believe, then at that point, you're really saying one of two things. And by the way, the word belief pestuo and faith pistis they're spelled almost identically only a few different letters in the greek language but they're synonyms and in some languages of the world they have to use the same word in john 3:16 that they use in ephesians 2:8 that you're saved by grace through faith because they only have one word in their language but that's okay because they mean the same thing so faith is believing what god promised and so god gives all these illustrations of faith noah built an ark he builds an ark though it never rained why because he believes that god is going to do what he said abraham moved to the place i'm going to show you god doesn't even give him directions he just gets up and he walks hundreds and hundreds and hundreds and hundreds of miles not knowing where he's going and then god appears to him because he believes that god is going to show him and he shows him and he says here's the place live here we call it israel faith takes god at his word and so if we don't believe the promise based on the gospel, which is defined as the death, burial, and the resurrection, then at that point, we're either saying, God, you can't save me, or you're saying, God, you won't save me. And if you're saying, God, you can't save me, you're really calling God a liar. Um, you, 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 you're calling him weak. You're calling him impotent. No, God can do all that he promised, and he's not a liar. So if he says, I'll save you, he will. So initially, I say, if someone has never come to assurance, it typically means that they just haven't believed what God said. Does that mean that Satan can attack assurance? Yes, he can. He can attack assurance. And so Paul, when he describes the armor, the offensive armor in Ephesians 6 of the Christian to stand against the wiles of the evil one, he says, put on the helmet of salvation. Well, the helmet of salvation is defined by Paul in 1 Thessalonians is the guarantee, the hope, the promise that we are his. Now, sometimes doubts come after, quote-unquote, salvation because the Holy Spirit is creating doubts because the person really has never been saved. And God wants them to get this issue settled. I would say to this caller, go to Search the Scriptures or communitybiblechurch.us and listen to the presentation. Would you like to know God is your friend? Or come to our next Meet the Pastor. It will be listed on our website at communitybiblechurch.us. August 26th. So come to that. And we'll help you with this issue, I promise. God bless you as you walk with Christ.